Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Last time we were together, Jesus was continuing his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. He was teaching her what true worship looks like. He was teaching her about theology. Just by way of review, in verse 25, last time we saw that the woman responded to Jesus' teaching by recalling to mind the coming of Messiah. Look at verse 25 of chapter 4 of the book of John. It reads like this. Verse 25 says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She's saying, I know Messiah is coming. He's going to work all that stuff out. He's going to work all this theological stuff you're talking about out, Jesus. And then Jesus does the unexpected, as God always does. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I, am, I who speak to you am he. God is always full of surprises. And here, Jesus amazes the Samaritan woman. Literally, in the Greek, it is ego emi. I am the one who is speaking to you. He's not saying, oh, you're confused. You don't know whether you're speaking to a tree or to a rock. That's not what I am, the one who is speaking to you, means. He's claiming the name of the living God from Exodus 3. The name that God revealed himself to through the burning bush to Moses take your sandals off he says to Moses because you're standing on holy ground my name is the I am and she gets it the woman gets it this is her instant of salvation of faith now we're going to see that in a little more detail in a few minutes but what we get in verse 26 is her statement's or Jesus' statement, his revelation of two things. I am the Christ. You're talking about the Christ? That's me. You're talking about the Messiah, which is another way of saying Christ? That's me. That's his direct statement, number one, unequivocal statement. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And the second statement that he makes is, I'm God, which is his claim to the very name of God, I am. She believes, but before we get the picture And the result of her belief, the camera turns, John turns the camera to the disciples. Look at this in verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? The disciples were amazed. First, Jesus amazes the woman. And now he amazes the disciples. He amazes the woman by disclosing who he is, and he amazes the disciples by disclosing what he does. You see, God is always full of surprises. God always exceeds expectations, and Jesus, of course, is God in the flesh. The disciples were amazed that Jesus was talking to this woman because of the centuries of animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews, which we've studied a number of times. This antagonism between these two groups meant that they really didn't have any interaction. And Jewish men certainly did not talk to Samaritan women, much much less uh, a rabbi, which is what Jesus is. Rabbi means teacher. 
the disciples are surprised that Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman. Just like the Samaritan woman was surprised that Jesus was talking to her. Remember when the conversation begins, back in verse 9? She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Remember, they're at the well, and Jesus is thirsty, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Despite the disciples' amazement, they say nothing. They don't say to the woman, what do you think? They don't don't say, what do you want to the woman? And they don't say to Jesus, why are you talking to this Samaritan woman? Maybe it's because the situation is just so awkward and, you know, it's just, I, I don't know what to say. So they say nothing. Or maybe it's because of the old saying that it's better to keep your mouth shut and appear foolish than to open it and remove all doubt. Which is actually a paraphrase from Proverbs 17, verse 28. It would have looked really foolish for them to have said, why are you giving the gospel to this woman? So wisely they keep their mouths shut. Then the scene, the camera turns back to the woman. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, The city here is probably the Samaritan city of Sychar, which is where the disciples were buying food. They they left Jesus at the well. They went to the Samaritan city of Sychar. Then they came back, and now the woman goes to Sychar. Look at verse 29. Come, see a man. This is the woman speaking to the men there in Sychar. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Something has fundamentally changed in this woman. I mean, it's a night and day change. Do you see it? She started out as this sour cynic, and now she's an excited evangelist. Right? Look at her sour skepticism. When the conversation begins in John chapter 4 with, with Jesus she says, why are you talking to me? You're a Jewish man. Why are, you, why are you even asking me for a drink? And Jesus offers living water. And her response is, you don't even have anything to draw from the well with. You don't even have a bucket. And you're sitting here offering me living water. Do you think that you're greater than our patriarch, Jacob, who gave us this? You don't even have a well. Our patriarch, Jacob, gave us this well. You don't have a well. You're talking about giving me living water. You don't have a well. You don't have a bucket. Even if you had a well, you're going to use our well from our patriarch, Jacob? And by the way, Jesus, do you know that we worship in the right mountain? You guys don't even worship in the right mountain. We worship in Mount Gerizim. And you boys worship in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. I know I'm paraphrasing. I get it. But that's essentially what she's... how she, how she starts this conversation. It's all this skepticism. And now, she's pumped. She's an excited evangelist. In fact, she's so excited that she forgets the very reason that she came to the well in the first place. She leaves the water pot there, we're told. Don't miss these details. The Holy Spirit is moving the Apostle John to give us details so that we get the full movie, so that we get the full picture. 
She's so excited about what she has just learned that she's speaking to God in the flesh, that she leaves her water pot there. She forgets why she came to the well in the first place. Because she's interested not in literal water anymore. She's interested in this living water that Jesus was offering her. And now that she has accepted, she's got something more important on her mind than literal water. It's the living water. She came to the well spiritually blind, spiritually thirsty. And now she leaves the well with spiritual sight and with the living water of eternal life. Verse 29 is just straight up evangelism. That's what verse 29 is. Verse 29 is pure evangelism. What does she say? At the very beginning of the verse, come and see. We've seen this phrase before. Remember it? In John 1. When Jesus says to the two, the first two disciples, they say, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And they follow him. Remember what Nathaniel says to Philip? Philip's like, please. The Messiah cannot come from Nazareth, some backwater town Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Come and see. The Samaritan woman says, come and see. Because what it's doing, that phrase, come and see, what it's doing is it's focusing the spotlight on Jesus. Because he's the one that the message of salvation is all about. She says, this man told me all things that I have done. She doesn't mean literally everything when she was two years old and five years old and seven years old and eight years old. She doesn't mean literally everything. She means the things that she would rather not have known. She means the things that she would rather have hidden. She means her sexual indiscretions. She means her fornication. She means that she's been married to to five other men and she's now living with a sixth man. She means he knows everything about me. I, I didn't tell him any of these things. In fact, he's a Jew. He doesn't even come through our land. He didn't go to the city. He just met me for the first time at the well and he knows all these things that I would, that I would typically keep confidential and hidden and I certainly didn't tell him. What she's emphasizing to the men of Sychar, to her neighbors, who probably know all these things about her because it's tough to conceal things in a little town, what she's emphasizing to her neighbors is the omniscience of this man that she has just met at the well that she now knows is Messiah and is God in the flesh. And notice how she frames the question. She frames the question to make them think. This is a brilliant woman. She says, this isn't the Christ, is it? That's how you have to read it. Not, this isn't the Christ, is it? No, 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 you've got to pause there. This isn't the Christ, is it? She knows she's got a credibility issue. She knows that they know her reputation in town. She knows that she's got a credibility issue on the things of God, like sexual morality. So she approaches the topic of the most important thing that they can ever hear about God, how to access God, how to access God through Christ. She knows that on that topic, she's not going to come at them directly. She's going to come at them obliquely. She's going to come at them kind of from the side. This isn't the Christ, is it? And God honors this woman. We're still talking about this woman 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet. God honors this woman. This woman who had a broken past. 
This woman who was broken and sinful. God honors her and honors her words. Because you see from verse 30 that they come to Christ. Right? That's what it says, doesn't it? It says they were coming to him. And then when we get to verse 39, it'll be even more clear. It'll say that many Samaritans believed because of her words. This woman is excited. She didn't go study some sophisticated book about about evangelism or some sophisticated book about apologetics. It's just she's excited because she has seen the, the, the Lord. And she's been saved. And she just can't help get it out of her mouth. She's got to say it. She can't hold it in. And so she tells the men of Sychar. Then the, then, then the Apostle John moves the camera again. And the scene shifts back to the apostles or the disciples at this time. Later, after Jesus is resurrected, he sends them out. They'll be the apostles. But look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We know from verse, 30, from verse 6 that Jesus was wearied. Remember, he's on a journey. Beginning of chapter 4 explains he's on a journey from Judea. The way the, the, way the map looks is you've got Judea, then you have Samaria. These are regions, the region of Judea, the region of Samaria. Then above that you have the region of Galilee. So Jesus is traveling from Judea through the region of Samaria to get to Galilee But verse 6 says that he was weary, tired from his journey. He's on a foot journey. They walk. They're not riding in a, a, you know, uh, a suburban. They're walking. They're tired. Jesus is a man. Remember, he's not just God, but he's, he's fully God, fully man. And as a man, he's tired and he's thirsty. That's why he asked the woman for a drink. And usually those things go together. Tired, thirsty, hungry. And so the disciples say, hey, we got the food. Let's eat. Let's enjoy our meal. This is what they say in verse 31. Look at Jesus' response in verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat. Did he? Remember the prologue? Remember the prologue of John? John 1 verses 4 and 5. The reference there is to the Lagos. The Lagos was the light of men, but the darkness did not comprehend it. The Lagos was the light of men, but the darkness did not comprehend the Lagos. The prologue, as we saw when we were there, introduces us to where John is going to take us in the book, throughout the book. The darkness did not comprehend the light. And so when Jesus speaks of the spiritual realm, so often in the book of John, the hearers, don't get it. They think of the material, the physical realm. So in John chapter 2, when Jesus is there in the temple and he says, tear this temple down and in three days I will rebuild it, they think of the sticks and the bricks, the sticks and the stones of the temple. But he's speaking of the supernatural resurrection of his body. In John chapter 3, same idea. The hearer thinks of the material, physical world as opposed to the spiritual realm. Because in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how do I get back in my mother's womb to be reborn? He doesn't get it because he's thinking about the material, physical realm. The woman in John chapter 4, Jesus says, 
I offer you living water. And she says, ah, how do I get this living water? How do you get this living water? You don't even have a bucket. She thinks he's talking about H2O. John chapter 6, he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's talking about the atonement. All right, that's what we celebrate in the communion service with the bread and the cup. Jesus is saying he's going to give his body. God became a man so that he could die because God cannot die. He became a man. He has a body as a man. You must accept who I am, God in the flesh. And you must accept what I will do, die. The blood represents his death, who I am and what I do. He's speaking of, his, of the spiritual atonement that they must accept, the spiritual satisfaction that the Father is satisfied with what the Son does. But of course the crowd thinks he's talking about cannibalism because they think in terms of the material, physical realm. John chapter 8, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Meaning, my message is a message of good news. It's a message of liberation not modern liberation theology, but it's liberation from the slave market of sin. And of course the people respond, we haven't been slaves to anybody. They're thinking about physical slavery. That's what's happening here with the disciples. Jesus says, I've got food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples turned to each other and said, did you give him a fig? Did you give him some bread? Did someone give him food? that we just brought from Sychar? Because they're thinking in terms of the physical material realm. Now granted, those chapters that I referred to, they're unbelievers. Un- Nicodemus was an unbeliever. The, the Samaritan woman was an unbeliever. They would be saved. But those are unbeliever passages that I, that I described from those various chapters. And these are believers here in our chapter with the disciples, other than Judas Iscariot, who Jesus described was described later as the son of perdition. But other than Judas, these are believers. But even believers can be spiritually dim and dull. Spiritually dull. That is what is happening with these disciples and that is what happens with me and with you. When we don't see the things of God, when our eyes are so fixated on the things of the world, the things of the world aren't unreal. They're real. It's just the things of God are more significant, and we'll see that in a moment. Here's what I need to be clear on. Jesus is not saying, when he says, I have food that you don't know about. He's talking about spiritual food. We'll we'll see that spiritual food in a moment. What he's not saying is, the way that you're spiritual is you don't eat food. You're spiritual if you don't have a water burger. You're spiritual if you don't enjoy that nice meal. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that the things of the material world are irrelevant. No, he just asked for water because he needs water. If he doesn't have water, if he doesn't have food, literal water, literal food, he will die, as will you and I. He's not saying that the things of the material world are unimportant. He's just saying that the things of God are infinitely more important are eternally more important. This is about priorities. Eternal priorities. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Remember when the devil was tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? And Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. Right? You, you, you see that, that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. Because Jesus is a man, fully God, fully man. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And so the devil says, turn these stones into bread. Specifically, what the devil says is, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And the way the Greek works there is, it's a sense. If you are the Son of God, and, and you are, since you are the Son of God, you certainly have the power, turn these rocks into bread so that you can eat because you're super hungry, is what the devil says. The devil's trying to get Jesus to act independent, to exercise his divine powers independent of the will of the Father, to not be humble and submit to the will of the Father. And what is Jesus' response? It is written. He cites Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The bread that we need to eat, the food that we need to eat, water, whatever it is, right? Whatever the food is, we need to eat it. But what we need infinitely more than that, eternally more than that, is the Word of God, which is the instruction of God, through which we learn the will of God. I think Jesus' point to the disciples here in John 4 is that sure, sure, Physical food satisfies the body, but doing the will of God, following His Word, His instruction, is the way of full, complete satisfaction. Because here's the deal. After you have the water burger, tomorrow you're going to be hungry. Actually, four hours later, five hours later, you're going to be hungry again. It doesn't fully satisfy. It doesn't fully satisfy. But the things of God, the eternal things of God, are designed to and actually do fully and completely satisfy. That's where the real feast is. Remember those elegant words from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Your words were found and I ate them, Jeremiah says. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. O Lord God of the armies. Why does Jeremiah finish that elegant quote about how he consumed the words of God with the title, God, Yahweh, God of the armies? Because that is the title of God's, that that is one of the names of God that reveal his sovereignty, his authority. And so Jeremiah perceives the word of God which is the instruction of God, as of value, so much value to him that it feeds him. It feeds him. And the reason he perceives that is because he approaches God in awe and wonder, with respect, something that our culture teaches you to disdain. Your culture, your government, your media, your methods of, entertain you, of entertainment teach you to mock God. And you submit to that at your great peril. Jesus is making a distinction between the physical realm, which is not unimportant, and the 
the spiritual realm, which is infinitely, eternally more important than what we can see and touch and feel. Jesus is focusing on divine priorities and the priority, the divine priority that is on Jesus' mind is saving souls. The Samaritan woman understands this well. That's why she leaves her literal water to go deliver living water to these men in the village where she lives in Sychar. I wonder if the disciples, when they were buying food in Sychar, I wonder if they gave the gospel to anybody there. Or you just, you, you, you don't talk to Samaritans. So I'll talk to you enough to, have, to, to, to buy that fig from you and that bread. Now I realize this is not in the text, so I'm going out on a limb a little bit here. Because the text doesn't say whether the disciples gave the gospel or didn't give the gospel to the men of Sychar. But when the, gospel, when, when the disciples are, are surprised that Jesus is talking to the woman, it just makes me wonder. It just makes me wonder if the disciples were willing to even speak the gospel to the Samaritans. They will. Make no mistake, they will. By Acts chapter 8, two of these then apostles, John and Peter, they will go to the Samaritans. And there will be a revival among the Samaritans. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Sadly, many believers today view the will of God, the Word of God, as a burden, not as a feast. Sadly, many believers today are disinterested in God and disinterested in serving God's people. Then we get to verse 35. And in verse 35, Jesus uses another image to teach the importance of divine priorities. He shifts from the image of eating food to the image of harvesting crops. Look at chapter 4, verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Jesus, again here, is making a contrast between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. In this case, a contrast between a physical harvest and a spiritual harvest, a physical harvest of crops, of fruit, and a spiritual harvest of souls. Apparently there was a saying back then of, in four months is the harvest. In other words, the time period between planting and harvesting was roughly four months. If this is December, when Jesus is uttering this, these words, and, 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 and the references to the, to the wheat harvest, and the wheat harvest would be in April. And so what's happening here is Jesus says, that may be the case for crops. That may be the case for wheat. But that's not the case for God. There's no delay. You be ready now for harvesting of souls. Now, Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look at the field because it is white, ripe for the harvesting of souls into the kingdom, into God's coming kingdom. The Samaritan men from Sychar are approaching as Jesus is uttering these words to the disciples. Right? The woman has already gone to Sychar and told the men, come and see. And we've already seen in verse 30 that they're coming to Jesus. Jesus sees the Samaritan men coming. Maybe they're walking through the field. Samaritans often were white. Maybe they're wearing white. Jesus says to his disciples, look, 
The field is ripe. It's ripe for harvest. Notice in verse 36 that the one who reaps is doing two things. The reaper is gathering fruit for life eternal. Gathering fruit for life eternal. In other words, he's telling people about the Lord, and then those people who he tells, he reaps the fruit. The fruit is reaped for eternal life. The reaper tells someone about the Lord, and that person believes, and they're saved. From death into life. This is what Jesus did. Jesus is a reaper. Jesus just reaped the Samaritan woman. He gave her the words of salvation and she believed. And now the Samaritan woman is a sower. Because she's going to go sow the seed with the men of Sychar. The first thing that we see here in verse 36 with respect to reapers is that the reaper is gathering fruit for eternal life. The reaper gives the message of the gospel and that person believes. And that's the fruit that is being harvested is souls unto eternal life. The second thing that the reaper does is the reaper receives wages. Immediate wages and deferred wages. Many companies, firms, law firms are, are, are do this, they pay their employees a monthly salary. Once a week, excuse me, once a month, twice a month. And then at the end of the year, there's a big fat check. And really, the end of the year, that check is kind of deferred compensation. Everybody knows it. The firm knows it. The associate, everybody knows it. It's a bonus. If the company's done really well, then the employee gets a, gets a big check, and assuming that the employee wasn't a slacker. But everybody knows it's really deferred compensation. That's what we're seeing here. I mean, if, if there's a human boss that knows how to do that well... Don't you think that God knows how to do that exponentially more than a human boss who's a good human boss, who compensates his employees well? You want to you get an employee who works better than everybody else? You pay them above market. You want to get above market performance? You pay above market. Well, God's going to pay us above market. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the wages. There's wages that the, re- that the reaper receives. Immediate wages and deferred compensation. Deferred wages. I love the way Mark Eden described that earlier today. There's deferred compensation and really the bigger payday is the deferred compensation. The immediate compensation that the reaper receives is this compensation that Jesus is enjoying Right here, right now. That's what he's feeding on. It's what he's feasting on. That's why he's not that, even though he's hungry, he's not, he's not that interested in the bread or the fruit or whatever it was that the, that the disciples brought from Sychar. He's going to eat it, I'm sure. But first he's feasting. He's feasting. Do you know how much you matter to God? I don't think you know. I don't think you understand. Because God in the flesh was feasting on the joy of having brought this woman to salvation. Out of death, out of eternal damnation, into eternal life. And he says, no, no, I'm not interested in that bread right now. No, I'm enjoying this feast right now. This reward. Jesus is a man. 
as a man, he's feasting on that which is spiritual. As God, he's feasting on this spiritual joy of having brought this woman to salvation. This reminds us of Luke 15. Remember Luke 15, the parable of the lost, which is really three parables. The first parable is a parable about the shepherd, the shepherd who has his his hundredfold flock of sheep, and he loses one. And he leaves the 99, he goes, finds the one, and he, and he carries it in his arms. Jesus tells the parable in Luke, Luke 15. And at the end of that smaller parable about the lost sheep, Jesus says, the joy in heaven, that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then there's the next parable in Luke 15 about the woman who's lost a coin and she's, she rummages through her house looking for the coin, looking, looking, looking. Usually those houses back then had a straw floor. They don't have, you know, tile or linoleum or carpet. And she's rummaging through and she finds the coin and she celebrates. And so Jesus says at the end of that smaller parable in Luke 15 that there is joy among the angels of God over one sinner who repents and then you get the parable of the parables in Luke 15 that is the parable of the prodigal son which is really not about the son it's about the father who celebrates when his prodigal son returns and he says, kill the fat and calf. He calls his servants, kill the fat and calf. Put some sandals on my son. Put a robe, put a signet ring back on him. I know he's been living with the pigs in the mud and he squandered his inheritance. He tells the servants to kill the fat and calf because we're going to celebrate. This is the joy that Jesus is feasting on. This is why he doesn't need a piece of bread or a fig. He, he, will, he will eat it later, I'm sure. Because he's feasting on the reward, the wages of having brought this woman to salvation. This woman who was blind and now she sees. Now, there is also, I should say, there is also compensation for the reaper in this life. Uh, Right now I'm I'm parked on the the phrase that Jesus uses where he says receiving wages, that the the reaper receives wages. There are the immediate wages of the joy of bringing someone to salvation. And then there are additional wages, additional blessings that I believe God gives in this life. Sometimes we don't always understand God's blessing, but there are blessings. The real blessing, though, is in the age to come, is in the life to come. That's where the real payday is in terms of, of wages. That's the biggest part of the payday. It's the eternal rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Look how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. The first thing that we see here from 1 Corinthians 3 is that God is not a socialist. Let me say that again. God is not a socialist. God is not a communist. You're rewarded for your work, and I'm rewarded for my work. You're not rewarded for my work, and I'm not rewarded for your work. Each one, what does it say? His own reward, according to his own labor. 
The second thing that I want you to see is that we all work in God's field. Don't flatter yourself. You're not that important, nor am I. You're not that impressive, nor am I. We work in God's field, which is to say this is God's business. When I say business, I don't mean the the buying and selling of, of goods and services. I don't mean commerce. I mean it is His jurisdiction. It is His matter. We work in His field. And the third thing that I want you to see here from 1 Corinthians 3 is that we work side by side with God. Notice that. It says God's fellow workers. Don't read that too fast. This is amazing. We work side by side with God. God allows you to speak the gospel to someone else, to tell someone else about Christ. He could take the bricks and have a better presentation of the gospel than using us. He could take a stone and just make it talk talk the gospel better than we can present it. But in his great wonder, he uses fallen, broken sinners, you and me, to present his message of salvation to a lost and dying world. Now it is God the Holy Spirit who opens their eyes, who convicts them, who exposes their need, who opens their eyes to the truth of the gospel that you spoke. So we are co-workers with God in God's field. Look up. The harvest is ripe. It's ripe, Jesus says. Then at the end of verse 36, Jesus says, The sower and the reaper will rejoice together. Together. In the ancient world, harvesting was a time of celebration. The folks who work in agriculture know that. Harvesting is a joyous time. Very much so for the ancient world. And here's what they did not do. Right? When, they're, when, they're, when they've got the crops, whether it's the grapes or it's the, the, the wheat harvest, and, and, and they, they've gathered them all together, and it's, it's a time of celebration and a, and a time of feasting, they don't say, Oh, you're the guy who sowed, and you're the guy who sowed. Get out of here. You didn't reap. It's just the people who cut the grapes that get to celebrate here in the harvest. That makes no sense. They didn't do that. Because the guy who sowed was just as valuable as the guy who cut the grapes off the vine. The guy who sowed the the vineyard years earlier. The guy who sowed the wheat harvest four months earlier. Just as valuable as the guy who reaped it. That's what Jesus is saying. Both will receive their wages. Sometimes it's discouraging to just be a sower. You tell someone about the gospel. I hope you're telling people about the gospel about the good news. I hope you're not hoarding it for yourself. You tell someone about the gospel and they look at you like you have three heads. Right? They look at you like you're from Mars. And you're like, oh man, I, I, I don't think, I felt like I was talking to the wall and just bounced off the wall. Sometimes it's discouraging to be a sower. Oh, the reaper, the, the, the one who gives the gospel and the person believes and says, Wow! can't believe you told me about that. The reaper gets immediate gratification. The sower, sometimes it can be discouraging. So Jesus says, 
God is keeping track. God is keeping track of the sowers and the reapers. This is God's field. It's not your field. Don't be discouraged. You do your duty, which is to serve your Lord and to present the word. The guy who reaps may be reaping because there were five sowers who came over the, over the years and sowed and sowed and sowed and sowed and sowed and sowed. And, sowed. and so when the, when the sixth guy comes along and tells the person about the gospel and they believe, that may be because there were five sowers beforehand. So if you're the reaper, don't get the big head. It's all God's work. God gets all the credit, the full measure of the reapers and the sowers celebrating together, which is what Jesus is talking about here. The sower and the reaper will rejoice together. That full measure of joint celebration will come in the eternal kingdom when the reapers and the sowers will meet. Because they're sowers that you don't know about. And the reapers that you don't know about stay the course. Stay the course. Present the Word of God. In the end, both reaper and sower will reap eternal rewards together. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not get weary, if we do not grow weary. Now is not the time to rest. Now is not the time to rest. We will rest when we get to the other side of the river. Not now. Now's the time to work. Work while the sun is out. Work in presenting the word to those who need it. Jesus then applies all of these principles directly to the disciples. Look at verse 37. For in this case, the saying is true, Jesus says. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Remember, Jesus has commissioned the disciples to go out and be his representatives to a lost and dying world. We saw in verse 4 of chapter 4 that they were, excuse me, in verse 2, that they were baptizing on on Jesus' behalf. They're baptizing, and baptism, they're they're acting as Jesus' agents. And then after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, he will send them and, and ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. He sends them out. Actually, he, he's, he is resurrected. He sends them out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the other most parts of the world. Then he ascends, and then he is seated. So they will go out and reap. They will reap the harvest, and they will st- stand on the shoulders of giants. They will stand on the shoulders of giants who sowed like the Old Testament prophets, like John the Baptist who came before them, like Jesus, because we know from the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew that Jesus is the ultimate sower. There in Matthew chapter 13, he's the one who sows the seed. Yet Jesus is also a reaper, as Jesus reaped the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman then goes to be a sower. She sows there. She sows the, sows the seed in the city of Sychar, of Samaria, and then the men come, and Jesus is going to reap those men that she sowed. He will reap those men to eternal life, which we will see next time. 
But as I close this morning, let me close with Jesus' words from Matthew 9, verse 37, where he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That's you. You're the worker. Go home, look in the mirror, and say, I'm the worker. You're the worker, I'm the worker. Do not be, I'm not trying to offend you, but I'm trying to be direct. Do not be like the lazy worker. Don't do it. You know, the lazy worker is the worker. The boss isn't here, I got nothing to do. And the boss walks by and he peers in the office and the guy's just playing video games on his computer. And, and the boss says, what are you doing? And the worker says, well, I didn't have any work to do. And the boss says, well, why didn't you ask me? Don't be the lazy worker. Ask the boss what you can do. Ask the Lord to make it clear to you what gifts He's given you, what resources He's given you, and how you can serve Him. And He will compensate you handsomely. Handsomely. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus talks about hundredfold rewards. Hundredfold rewards. It's very, very important. As was mentioned earlier, there are three reasons to obey God. One is because you fear Him. He's going to take His belt out and whip you and it's going to hurt. Another is because you love Him. That's actually the best of all the motivations. But a third perfectly legitimate reason to obey God is because He's going to reward you and He's going to do it exponentially if you will get to work. Now remember, when you work for God, it's not for your glory. It's not so that people will say, Wow, she's so spiritual. Alex is so godly. Because the minute you do that, that's not for God. That's for you. And then God treats you like the Pharisees and He gives you what you want. And you get zero eternal rewards because you're not seeking His glory. You're seeking your own glory. Remember what He said to the Pharisees? Or He actually said to the, to the disciples about the Pharisees? He said, when they pray on the corners, they want everybody to watch them. Pray with many words. Look at what a great prayer I am. The Pharisees were doing. Because they wanted everybody to recognize them for their own self-aggrandizement. And God said, they get no reward. You do it so that no one knows. Now some things in the spiritual life other people need to know about. Because you can't do it in private. But other things, like when you give, shh, no one needs to know. Don't go telling somebody, you know how much I gave to this, to this church, to this organization? Shh. You and your spouse need to know, and that's it. Get to work. If there's anybody here without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, we want you to know I say this in love, that you are the enemy of God. You are the enemy of God, subject to His terrifying wrath, and you are on the death train, and it is proceeding to eternal condemnation. But God loves you. God loves you with a love that will not let you go. God loves you so much to not leave you in your condition of being a rebel, of despising Him. You say, I don't despise God. 
Yes, you do. By your rejection. By your rejection of Him. When the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Faith alone in Christ alone is the only way to stop being the enemy of God and to become His child. To stop being under His wrath. You're under His wrath because you're a sinner and God in His holiness must condemn your sin. He can't tolerate it. He can't blow it off. He must condemn it. And yet God is also a God of love. In addition to holiness and wrath and judgment, He is also a God of mercy and grace. And in His mercy, He gives you a way out. But the way is very narrow. There's only one way, and that is through Christ. Christ is completely exclusivistic. You say, I'm not going to believe in a God who says there's only one way to Him. You have that prerogative. You do. For now. Not forever. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Consider it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us to spread it, to speak it to others in truth. Open our eyes that we may see that the field is ripe for harvest. Open our eyes, challenge us to seek opportunities for your glory, not for ours. Remind us that the wages are rich. Remind us that we should obey you and long for you and long for those to enter into your blessed love and to be citizens in your coming kingdom. Help us do this. Help us obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.